This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. You think these are serial murders? I don't know. First one I found dates back to the 60s. Early Christians believed that Bagul actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. Children exposed to the images were especially vulnerable to Bagul's abduction. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Painting. I wanted to paint her picture. Who are you talking about? Stephanie. She used to live here. Coming to you live from my study, where between multiple glasses of whiskey, I'm catching up on some old family movies. You are hereby invited to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. And sitting in the corner of that same study, just trying to get you to shut up already, I'm Bradford Lorick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight, three of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this gaggle of gorehounds will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet, as assigned by a true horror aficionado, you, sir. Joining us tonight to discuss the 2012 film Sinister, all the way from a tiny bit upstate in New York, are the one and only Hannah Cabell and Ryan King. Welcome to Scare You Kids. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So to give you a sense of who these folks are, Ryan is a screenwriter, a playwright, and an actor who wrote the screenplay for Black Flies, which premiered at um, something called the Cannes Film Festival this year, uh, starring Sean Penn and Ty Sheridan after being selected for the 2018 Blacklist of Hollywood's favorite unproduced screenplays. His original thriller screenplay, The Tudor, starring Garrett Hedlund and Noah Schnapp, was also recently released and peaked at number three on Netflix's top 10. His plays have been developed at Williamstown Theatre Festival, Naked Angels, Rattlestick Theatre, Club Thumb, and Ars Nova. And as an actor, he's appeared regionally and off-Broadway. And Hannah is a New York-based actor, director, and writer who wrote, directed, and starred in the short film Lost Nation, which 
just won Best New Hampshire Short at the 2023 New Hampshire Film Festival. Congratulations. Thank you. She is also a Lucille Lortel and Drama Desk Award nominated actor whose TV credits include The Blacklist, The Good Fight, Madam Secretary, Mr. Robot, and The Leftovers. And she currently plays Judge Renee Gittins on Law & Order. So, hey, how the heck are you both? And what else are you up to these days? Uh, We're good. Thank you. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I'm sort of doing the the festival route with my short, as you just mentioned, Lost Nation. I also am planning slash hoping slash planning to make uh, my first feature next year. And I'm also currently writing a new one, which has some aspects of the horror genre. So I'm particularly excited to be here on this podcast tonight. Mr. King. Mr. King. Um, I am trying to come back from Strike with a Vengeance. So I'm trying Mm. to be very thoughtful about what I'm doing. Uh, I think one of the things I'm working on is a original slasher film that got pitched to me. We've been kind of developing it. I've been watching a lot of kind of like tonal reference movies. And and then also Hannah and I are starting to write a project together as well, a kind of uh, thriller that takes place in northern Maine. We're going to be really mysterious about it and not tell you much else. <laughs> but it's the first time we've officially written something together. So it's super exciting. That's awesome. And I'm curious, so both of you are actors who have taken that leap into writing and directing. Ryan, you have Black Flies coming up. Hannah, you've just won an award for Lost Nation. Do you you feel that that work is like a big shift for you or has the transition been pretty natural? It did feel somewhat natural. I mean, I feel like there were definitely things I had to kind of become more conscious of in terms of structure and things like that. But I do feel like Mm. as an actor, you always kind of have a leg up. It's always super Mm. nice when someone like reads one of your scripts and can kind of tell you're an actor Mm because it feels like you know how little text you need to make something work or you're really Mm -hmm. inside the scenes. So, I mean, it's definitely helpful. Yeah, I feel like, um, well, Ryan kind of made the transition before I did. I started during the pandemic when there was absolutely, well, actually, there was more acting work during the pandemic than there has been this past year with the strike. But um, <laughs> yes, in the midst of waiting for those jobs, you know, I had been listening to Ryan write his scripts for a few years. I had been helping him edit those scripts, and I'd been getting more and more interested in screenwriting because of him. And so during the pandemic, he really encouraged me to to just do it, to just sit down and do it. And so it's been an interesting, I wouldn't even call it a transition necessarily, because yeah, as Ryan said, we we constantly work on scripts as actors. And so we're inside that structure all the time. So I think for me, the hardest part of the transition was not being daunted by kind of coming outside of it and um, mm. and looking at the structure or the creation of it from a different vantage point. But once I sat down and started to do it and learn a little bit, of course, about how to do it, it did feel kind of natural just because we've been analyzing scripts for years and years and years. And right. so it's been, it's been actually super fun and um, fulfilling, I've found. It's actually kind of hard sometimes because as an actor, you're so 
uh, inside of things. And so sometimes when we're having to like pitch something and you're expected to kind of like step outside of it and talk about it in this like really macro way was actually a kind of learning curve for me because I, I tend to just want to like be inside of it and take you through every single moment. And TV execs are like, oh, my God, stop talking. You've been- <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, Hannah, you said something um, about um, that you you were listening to Ryan writing. Was he writing very loudly? <laughs> I did realize I said that. No, but he talks about his projects. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, you know what I was thinking? Like a he was using like a piece of charcoal in the back of a shovel or something. Well, the- I do need a lot of positive <laughs> feedback, people. Even if you haven't, you're not like reading my thing in process. There's a lot of spying. <laughs> I need a lot of yes. just telling me that I'm doing a great job. Also, not right. not to um, get there too fast, but if we're looking at the movie that we watched for today, there's a lot of talking to oneself that happens when one is a writer yes. out loud. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounds like the most marvelous sort of um, creative crucible you guys have. I mean, <laughs> minus the witchcraft and the touching the bottom of this no, swamp. No, there's that you know? too. There's that too, Bradford. Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. I mean, whatever it takes. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, guys. So um, the first thing that we like to ask our guests here at Scare You is what is your history with the horror genre and what is your favorite horror film? Hannah, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, my history is I'm scared of them generally. I My best friend, when I was about seven, locked me in a room and wouldn't let me leave until I watched Cujo. And mm-hmm. after that, I was, I was a little bit scarred. But I have to say, I love horror movies like The Shining, like Rosemary's Baby, I love Midsommar. So the movie we watched for today is not my normal fare that I go for. And therefore, I haven't watched, I'd say, that many horror movies over the scope of my life. But as we were saying before, Ryan's getting more and more into writing horror. And so we've been talking about it more and watching a few of more of them than I have before. So I don't know. I'm picky about my horror movies, I'd say. So what was the f- the first one that you saw was Cujo at seven? Yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. All right. And it, among the ones that you just um, named, could you identify a favorite among them? Oh, probably The Shining. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good choice. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Mr. Very King. Good choice. I was a very lonely, scared, traumatized child. So the few times I maybe caught a moment of horror... Um, I immediately turned it off and didn't sleep for two weeks. Um, I particularly remember a memory of uh, my mother at one point um, after uh, she divorced my father was dating a psychologist. And I remember having a call in fifth grade about child's play. And I was so freaked out that I was not sleeping. um, And that memory just came back to me today, actually. Um, I also remember in April Fool's Day when that person pops up after the the ship runs into their face. Um, um, mm-hmm. That was another. Oh God! Local deckhand Buck. Was, yes. Is that was that actually the person's name? That's incredible. Yes. Um, yes. I, yes. I it wanted is. to rewatch that movie, but I'm I'm just traumatized by it. So, but it's really only been in the last four years that I started watching them. Uh, kind of with purpose and really enjoying them, and I think it was some of those Ari Aster ones that probably inspired me to to take it more seriously and look into it more. 
Um, well, I will tell you that I am currently uh, outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. I am at my younger brother's house uh, specifically for Halloween. I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old nephew who is already obsessed with scary movies. Uh, he has been watching um, the both of the Goosebumps movies oh, yeah. all the month of October. Um, he, uh, he watched um, Beetlejuice on repeat the other day. And this afternoon, we found him watching Halloween 4 oh. on AMC. No. Um, and in my family, this is starting a little bit late. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, but, oh, yeah. Um, but Grayson is all about it. He loves to be scared. Um, he is going as a really scary zombie for Halloween tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, and I am here very specifically because Grayson wanted a pair of um, zombie hands for his Halloween costume. Um, and they don't make them in children's sizes. So Uncle B came to the rescue and made Grayson a pair of custom latex zombie hands. Oh uh, and there, there are some great pictures that I'm going to send to you guys when this is all over of Grayson um, die-aging his uh, zombie clothes with spray-writ dye. He is so into it, I could not be prouder. Uh, and and I, just wanted to, um, I just wanted to put a button on, on the conversation about when we saw our first horror movies by telling you that downstairs right now is a three-and-a-half-year-old who was up until 1 a.m. last night watching horror movies. I cannot get enough of it. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. My little win will not be going out trick-or-treating this year. Because Why not? He's, because he's 14, and um, apparently it stops at that age. Oh. Mm. What did you do at 14 on Halloween? I can't remember. I honestly don't remember. As this is a family program, I will not tell you what I was doing on <laughs> Halloween at 14. So. Yes, indeed. Right. Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Uh, Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your patented brief spoiler-free synopses for this film? Uh, you know, I'd love to, but I'm a little afraid to open the box. <laughs> what box, Eric? The box, the one that's behind you. Well, I, I don't see a box, Eric. You don't? Just read the fucking synopsis, will you? Christopher Young, let's hear some uh, let's hear some score, man. It's been a while since true crime writer Ellison Oswald had a bestseller, and the strain is starting to wear on Ellison, his wife Tracy, and their kids, Trevor and Ashley. Local law enforcement isn't too keen on him either, as his last few books didn't cast them in the best light. That's when Ellison and his family take up residence in a modest Pennsylvania ranch house with something of a history, something we learn at the very beginning when we watch a family 
being lynched in the house's backyard. Unfortunately, seeing this as his one last chance at the big time, Ellison neglected to inform Tracy of this, and when things start going bump in the night, and the home movies left behind reveal ominous clues about a killer's identity, Ellison finds himself turning from the hunter to the hunted. A helpful deputy steps in to assist, as well as a professor of the occult, but by the time they reveal their own information, the situation has devolved from strange to sinister. Oh, you are twisting my last nerve, Winnick, but that was not bad. Coming from you, sir, that is the highest of compliments. All right, well, why don't we tell everyone who was responsible for the making of this film? Yes, let's. Um, This film was directed by one Scott Derrickson, who also helmed The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which we covered last season with special guest David Grimm. Uh, Derrickson is also known for directing the first Doctor Strange film, also The Black Phone, Deliver Us from Evil, and one of the segments in the recent VHS 85. Derrickson is a busy man these days with no less than four projects in the works. He's got The Gorge, a romantic action movie with Miles Teller, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Sigourney Weaver, uh, Two Eyes Staring, When Gravity Falls, and something called The Untitled Labyrinth Project, which I'm going to assume does not feature David Bowie. This film was penned by Derrickson and his regular writing partner, C. Robert Cargill. It features one Ethan Hawke, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Juliet Rylance, who is so good as Della Street in HBO's late great Perry Mason, and former U.S. Senator Fred Dalton Thompson as the sheriff. Uh, it also features James Ransone, better known as the adult Eddie Kasparak in It Chapter 2 as uh, Deputy So-and-So. Uh, two kids who are excellent in this, Michael Hall Daddario and Claire Foley, and an uncredited cameo by Vincent D'Onofrio as Professor Jonas. Um, would you uh, suggest, Eric, that um, Vincent D'Onofrio was a bonus Jonas in this film? <laughs> Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Sinister opened on October 12th, 2012. It was made for a lean $3 million. It brought in $48 million in the U.S. and Canada, and a whopping $82.5 million worldwide. The film sports a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes, which, for the uninitiated, is technically still fresh. Our guy Raj, in a review titled Things That Go Bump in the Attic, stated, Sinister is an undeniably scary movie, with performances adding enough human interest to give depth to the basic building blocks of horror. Manola Dargis in the New York Times complimented the director, stating Mr. Derrickson keeping the lights dimmed effectively puts his pieces into play, even if their familiarity, a man struggling with his art, his foolishly supportive wife, children in peril, possible evil, brings to mind superior entertainments like Rosemary's Baby and The Shining, Hannah. (laughs) 
While fusty old Anthony Lane in The New Yorker opined, quote, the insertion of found footage into horror flicks is now so common as to be almost compulsory, like the use of vomiting in mainstream comedies. What a golden age we inhabit. Ellison, peering at the clips, spies a masked figure known as Mr. Boogie, though that sounds like a bad compilation album from 1975, it refers to a mythological thief of souls, thus plunging the film into the lair of the unnatural. Lane went on to say, uh, throughout Sinister, the rooms remain darker than crypts, whether at breakfast or dinner time, and the sound design causes everything in the house to moan and groan in consort with the hero's worrisome quest. I still can't decide what creaks the most. The floors, the doors, the walls, the dialogue, the acting, or the fatal bows outside. Sinister was nominated for exactly no Oscars, but it was nominated for the only award that matters, the Fangoria Chainsaw Award, in the categories of Best Wide Release Film, Best Actor, and Best Score, and in fact, it won Best Score by Christopher Young. And now is your opportunity to get hot for teacher. The weekly segment in which we and Van Halen get to find out just why he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me, assigned the film. But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Hannah and Ryan, like me, you had not seen this film prior to the professor's assignment. Had not seen it. That is correct. Okay, great. So, Professor... Please inform us and our listening audience why you chose Sinister for the Scare You curriculum. Well, I mean, it's ostensibly an occult crime story. Uh, it is also set in Pennsylvania, where I come from, though not in a real place in Pennsylvania. But I find it to be a taught muscular, visceral fright fest. Uh, I think it requires no deep thinking or excavation. It is a scary, scary movie. It is a, a like perfect vintage Blumhouse at the very height of its ethos and power. You know, spend a very small amount of money and maximize every dollar's worth of scare. Um, I think it starts very strong with a deeply disturbing visual of four people slowly being garroted by the neck in a tree. And God, how do I, I, I mean, there here, there be spoilers. Um, children in horror films are, are usually objects of sympathy uh, in which some kind of sinister supernatural force is, is preying upon them, like in The Exorcist or Poltergeist. Um, but sometimes 
They are the sinister force. Um, Village of the Damned, the children, there's something wrong with the children, the children of the corn. Um, and, uh, and I think this is sort of um, a strange kind of hybrid of, of both of those things. And I also love a horror film involving sort of cursed media, like The Ring. Cursed media is is often used as a kind of mechanism of of supernatural transmission. Um, in this film, I think it's also kind of a metaphor. I think it, it, it is sort of like a a metaphor for complicity. You know, I, I don't know if in 2012 we were kind of um, excoriating the 24-hour news cycle or the idea of voyeurism or or voyeurism without engagement or engagement only for fame and profit but you know i'm i'm really um especially excited to talk about this movie tonight with the three of you because you are all family folks and this is kind of a scary movie about something going wrong in a family. Um, we've got this um, relationship of Ethan Hawke's character, uh, Ellison Oswalt. He he is um, got this, he's riding this line between being a, a participant and being um, uh, an observer in his own family as he's working through the this kind of uh, list of true crime books that he's writing uh, with, um, you know, it's kind of a story of diminishing returns in that direction. And we learn right away that he's kind of set up shop in a recent crime scene that he's going to be writing about. Uh, and we have all of the kinds of um, horror tropes that one might expect, uh, like mysterious boxes of media that are showing up in the attic. Uh, you know, we, we, as we are tracking this box, what are all of these titles? We've got family barbecue. We've got um, hanging around. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we're learning about the book that he's writing, we're learning about the relationship of the films that he's found to the stories that he's telling. Um, and, and I think we think we're kind of tracking a series serial killer or a kidnapper, but it turns out to be something so much more unusual than we might be expecting. Um, and from the very first night with the family in this house, things are kind of off to the races. Um, we've got kids having night terrors. Uh, you know, we've got kids who are um, inspired by supernatural means to paint really devastatingly unsettling paintings on the walls of their bedrooms. And, and I think from the time that this movie came out, you know, it's it's very much in the vein of sort of um, insidious, down to the title. But in this film, which is kind of a family drama that is kind of evolving in tandem with a supernatural horror story, soon enough, uh, there there is a a Babylonian demon that's kind of introduced into the mix. Uh, and, and, you know, thanks to, I guess, the, the kind of 
transitive property of demonometry, um, we, we've kind of got this sort of supernatural cross-pollination that's happening and kind of infecting the family, infecting the viewer. As our critical analyses uh, were, were kind of pointing out, um, you know, the, the mise-en-scene of Sinister is ostensibly kind of as, as pitch-black murky as the story that it's kind of attempting to sort of visually explore. Um, you know, it's got unholy storyboards drawn by children, all of which feature this Mr. Boogie character. It's got um, Chekhov's French press. Uh, it's got um, soupçon of kind of paranormal propagation, this kind of evil outgassing and and this kind of um, spreading of, of supernatural infection uh, in the way that um, the Amityville horror does, you know, the, the OG Amityville horror with, uh, with James Brolin and Margot Kidder uh, in, in the way that we kind of watch evil work its way throughout um, the structure of a family. And I, I, I think it's a really scary movie, uh, and I'm very excited to talk about it with the three of you. Oh, hey, you guys, that, that's the fire drill. Yep, whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, what the hell are you doing here? Just go watch it. That's right, because it is time for Study Hall, which, of course, is the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments or scenes or aspects that made this such an indelible film. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, Honor Roll, i.e. what worked, and Detention, i.e. What didn't work? Uh, But before we get into it, I have to ask, just to establish where we are on the playing field, uh, I would like a yes or no response. Did you like this film, Hannah? No. Ryan? No. Eric? Yes, I did. What?! Will will wonders never cease? Okay. Uh, you know, I thought this was going to go the other way. Hannah, Ryan, Eric hates everything. I thought the two Not of you everything. might be swept along by the story of Sinister. Uh, I clearly misjudged the room. It's known to happen. But holy it's shit, right. hallelujah, Eric. I'm so excited. Um, all right, so let's... Um, Let's get after it. Uh, we're going to do honor roll first. And guys, we're going to do this round robin style. And we will each name a scene or aspect or attribute of sinister that worked best for us. And then we'll come around for one more each. And then we will hand out those dastardly detention slips. Uh, so Hannah, why don't you go first and give us your first nomination for the honor roll? Yeah, absolutely. So... James Ransone, I, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, who I think so. Played Deputy So and So was a total shining light for me in this movie. Mm. I just he mm-hmm. came on screen and well, maybe not at the very top, but that second scene of his, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. there is a a great actor, and B, I loved his character development. 
too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. So he's he's sort of like um he's like a fool a la Shakespeare. You know, he's a little sort of Theresius, I think, in this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to not to give too much credit where it isn't due, but I love James Ransone. I think he's doing great work with what was written for him. Yeah. Uh, and he just um he he's a total delight whenever he's on screen. He really grows on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's this really clever turn of bumbling cop into the one that nearly saves the day. Um, all right, uh, Mr. King, would you like to give us your first nomination? I will say, even though I feel like I saw the kind of final reveal somewhat early, which is not something I do very like very often because I'm usually the only person that has no idea what the big turn's going to be, <laughs> I did find the end of this movie I think it's when he found the deleted scenes and then you saw all the kids yeah. that they had been. Yeah. I, I found it probably as a parent, but just completely terrifying, even though I knew it was coming. And I was especially taken by that scene of the weird blood on the walls that looked like ancient cave paintings, which for some reason yes. I'm sure is going to turn up in my dreams tonight. So Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, Mr. Winnick, would you like to give us your first nomination? Yes, I'm going to give it to... The atmosphere in this film, the feelings of menace and dread, the use of light and shadow. Uh, basically, uh, I think we have to hand it to Scott Derrickson. Um, he has come a long way since Emily Rose, which I really did not like. And after this, he does Doctor Strange and The Black Phone. And he just did an excellent segment in VHS 85. The way that the real life, quote unquote, real life footage is made to look almost like the Super 8 footage. It feels grainy. It seems to be missing a few frames at times. He, he really is a master of the uncanny, of making things seem out of place, creating unease. And he's really a great director of kids, uh, if this and the black phone are any indication. Uh, Bradford, what do you have for your first honor roll nomination? Well, um, you know, uh, somebody's already talked about James Ransone, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I, I am going to give this film credit for, um, for its use of misdirection and sort of twists. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that in the way we might be expecting, which is perhaps also a bit of misdirection and maybe a twist. Um, but uh, Ethan Hawke, uh, Ellison Oswald, has a, a line to um, Ms. Rylance at uh, one point in the film where he says, every minute we're here, we're a minute closer to that happy ending we've always dreamed mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of like the classic demonic promise um you know it's like um you know like in antigone we would learn that in creon's mouth truth and lies are mixed and here it's more like um demonic delusion ellison is is drawn into thinking that the story he's discovering is going to be his salvation but in fact it's his undoing and we're also set up to believe that it's his son who will be involved in the most horrible horror in the film. But lo and behold, it's his daughter. Um, and the characters are being played, are being manipulated uh, as much as I think we, the audience, are. 
because the children in this aren't victims. Well, I mean, they they are, but they're also kind of in league with the demon. They are actors being acted upon. And I think, um, you know, in, in this story, um, foibles and folly kind of become fault in a kind of inexorable and kind of inextricable way. Um, and, you know, the pieces are kind of all there for us. They're waiting to be strung together. Um, you know, the the mysterious kind of fleeting smile on his daughter's face in the backseat of the car as they're fleeing. Um, the the goodnight daddy note under Ethan Hawke's coffee cup, um, while the cup itself is full of, you know, a slipped Mickey. Um, and in the literal final reel of the film, there is a literal final reel that kind of simultaneously unravels the story as it kind of knits the story together. And I think that all of these kinds of um, contradictions and misdirections are, in fact, the great sort of strength of this film. Shall we go into uh, honor roll nomination number two, back to Hannah? Sure. Well, I was thinking a similar thing, Bradford, of like, even though in the end I didn't love this film and there were a lot of things I didn't love about it, it did parse out the reveals in a really satisfying way. But that's not going to be mine because you just said it. So um, I was so tickled by Vincent D'Onofrio as the occult professor, especially his line, thank you, Jessica, when he was brought <laughs> coffee, that, that was, that's my number two. Um, all right. Uh, Mr. King, would you like to give us your second honor roll nomination? I'm torn between two. One, which is a very broad, major shout out to Ethan Hawke, which I think is very deserved for this performance, because I kept picturing this movie with a, a lesser actor. And I don't know, I just Ooh. think he was doing a lot with some very difficult material in some places. But... Mm -hmm. That's not going to be mine. See what I just did there. Um, mm. I have to say, and I think, I, I don't know if this is uh, included in the award that the composer won, but I was very, very uh, drawn in by the, the uh, music, the eerie music that was playing during the found footage videos. And as the movie unfolded, I became very impressed that I realized we were seeing something uh, I've never seen before, which is a supernatural killer with a deep love for eerie avant-garde music. And I was very, very impressed at how much eerie, atonal, ambient music he not only uh, had knowledge of, but was able to weave into the videos uh, along with his amazing editing skills. It was very impressive. <laughs> uh, you know, that's cute. I that's love that. Clever, clever, Mr. King. Um, I I do think that the um, super disturbing sound design definitely deserves some credit, uh, and I think also the way that um, the the sort of presence of the projector and its kind of mechanical sounds kind of grows and grows throughout the film uh, until it really is quite overwhelming. I, th I, I think that is, is expertly done. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, Mr. Winnick, what about uh, honor roll number two for you? Gosh, I just don't have time to make up a new one because Ryan just took my number two. But I'm I'm going to read what I wrote because um, it's sort of the same, sort of different. Um, the score, 
by Christopher Young. And I can only imagine that this is in concert with the sound design, which is credited to a Mark Aramian. Uh, both of them do a ton of heavy lifting here, uh, especially in scenes where there is no ambient sound. Like in the end, it's just the score droning on as Ashley is committing the murders and then gets abducted by Mr. Boogie. It's so fucked up with voices speaking and children counting and chanting and other effects mixed into the music. It is fully deserving of that Chainsaw Award and maybe one of the best horror scores I've ever heard. There is a piece that I think is pretty typical. I looked this up because the entire score is available on YouTube. There's a piece called BBQ 79 that starts out very soft and very sweet and eventually kind of morphs into this gritty, distorted scratching. And it's just so unnerving to hear. And all the tracks are titled like the Super 8 films, including one that you don't know about till the end called House Painting, uh, in parentheses, Blood Swamp. So let that sink in. Uh, Mr. Lorick, honor roll number two. I'm really torn. I think much like you, Ryan, I I don't know whether I want to, you know, I I don't know whether I want to talk about something that is more meaningful or something that is really specific, like the lawnmower jump scare, because I think I jump every time I see it, but maybe I won't use that as my second and final honor roll mention. Um, I think what I will say is that um, there is a moment in the film Ellison wakes up. It is 3.23 a.m. We are looking at uh, the face of a digital alarm clock. uh, And um, Ellison can hear the projector running. Yes. And he walks into his uh, office. Mm -hmm. um, And as he is entering the room, his body becomes the sort of literal... uh, surface upon which the story is being written oh yeah um yeah. the you know the film is projected onto his body which is about to be acted upon by bagul and by his own child in a in an extremely deleterious way to uh his continued <laughs> living um and i just think it's a a lovely sort of metaphor and it makes me happy that the filmmakers are thinking about things in that way i knew you'd love that i do however i have to ask you um you did mention earlier chekhov's french press yes uh do you want to can you explain that i i didn't quite understand what you're i didn't quite get it well you know um ethan hawk uh ellison he's very specific about how he takes his coffee uh so um his 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 wife and his daughter at one point are making the coffee right 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 explaining how daddy's very particular um Uh, we we have seen it a couple of times um and then at the end of the film he is poisoned through Mm. his coffee by his daughter which is accompanied by a note that says good night daddy Yes. Not to be yes. confused, Eric, with uh, Goodnight Mommy. Indeed. I was thinking that you were going to say that the French press was used in a way that um, 
like somebody was murdered with it. I didn't recall that. I mean, but you're talking about the a... preparation of coffee. Yes. Okay, got yes. it. Detention, after school, both of you. And you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just, Just perfect. perfect. Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Hannah, why don't you start us off? What is the first of two aspects of this film that you think deserves detention? I have to say Juliet Rylance. And Mm. I know, I know, but it's not just her performance. It's also that her exposition, it's also what she's given to say is just so rough to me throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, She comes across as exposition wife constantly. She, the only thing she seems to do is run errands. The only thing she seems to do is support him. There's all these scenes of her saying she's she's with him she's on his side so it just drove me a little bit crazy and then also her performance I have to say she's so chipper throughout in a way that to me mm-hmm. didn't help the stakes early on mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. so yeah yeah sorry sorry Bradford <laughs> I, I didn't write her and I didn't direct her Hannah no apologies needed I um, know Uncredited rewrite by Bradford. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I do think, and you know, this is, I'm always on Eric's case about this. I mean, I do feel that for the genre, they're not doing the worst job of exposition or of performance. You know, I mean, I do think that, again, I mean, if you're comparing this to your standard issue genre fair, yeah. I think that we've got some performances that are really kind of elevating material in this. But I do hear what you're saying about the kind of role that um, this character is is sort of forced into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. I have high standards. I'm, I'm sorry. As you are. As well you should. As well you should. Uh, You've got a Lucille Lortel nomination, a Drama (laughs) Desk nomination. The standards must be high. (laughs) Mr. King, do you have your first detention slip ready for us? I'm torn now because Bradford just said that the exposition in this movie was actually better than most. And that was quite possibly going to be my first detention. Um, Go for it. So I'm going to think about that one. And I'm going to start with my small one which was a seemingly small costume design decision that would go on to have an outsized impact on my experience of the film, especially the second time I saw it, which was Ethan Hawke's shirt at the top of the film that just blares out that he attended Bennington College for 27 minutes that every single scene I'm I'm watching him with the sheriff, I'm just confronted by this Bennington College t-shirt 
And I, I can't even go on to like explain like the ways it kind of just threw me. And I, I don't I don't know. It just felt like a, a like a last minute attempted character development or trying to get some kind of sympathy for him for a character that's it's kind of hard to relate to in moments. I'll also say that his cardigan was giving me the same information as that Bennington <laughs> College shirt. Bravo, bravo. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Bradford Lorick, do you want to give us your first detention slip? Yeah. Uh, I guess um, I am gonna... I'm going to author my detention slip in the form of a question, which is, why is there a super eight millimeter film strip from 2011? And why is there a demonic extended cuts reel for shame? The, I mean, this is like special features that show up with the second release. Is this like the, he's put it through the fire and what has come back is the deluxe collector's edition. That's so funny. I find it frustrating to the point of distraction. And that is my first attention slip. But who doesn't who doesn't love deleted scenes? I think in this group, I bet everybody loves deleted scenes. Absolutely. But I like them when they come from the studio, not from the gates of hell or <laughs> Babylon or whatever fucking Sumerian, you know, ziggurat Bagul has escaped from. Yeah, good point. Thank you. So I'm going to, for my first attention slip, back up something that um, that Hannah said. In a slightly different way, um, I, I have a few notes about the marriage um, that may be about the way the character of Tracy is drawn. Um, the film seems to be saying that they're pretty much on the outs at the beginning. Tracy threatens to take the kids and move literally the first night they're there, which is a pretty serious thing to say. But then she's like, just go kick its ass. And she continually says that she's on Ellison's side when so many things are happening. You think having given him this sort of ultimatum at the beginning that she just pack up and leave way earlier in the film. Also, she's so surprised to hear his book is about a family that was hung. He's a true crime novelist. And after they have their climactic argument, when she learns what house they're living in, and that he's been lying to her, to me, it's just not believable that she'd stay with him a minute longer. It just makes me feel like the marriage is on shaky ground one minute and then secure the next. So I think that's kind of a combo of the writing of both the character and the marriage. All right. Does that bring us back to to Hannah for detention slip number two? Yes. I think think it does. All right. Let's do it. Well, I was a little confused by... Ethan Hawke's character, Ellison, re-watching all those videos of himself getting interviewed. I mean, first of all, the mm. first one that he watched, wasn't it only supposed to be 10 years before? And it looked like it was 1983 on like really shitty VHS. Mm-hmm. He looked like he was in Dead Poets yeah, Society. I know. I was, it was like, oh my God. While being interviewed by Phil Donahue. <laughs> yeah. Very serious interviewer. And, and... I sort of couldn't follow. I mean, it sort of seemed like in every interview he was saying that fame and fortune came first. 
and this the that became kind of a recurring theme for him so i had trouble identifying with him or feeling like he was this good guy put in this bad position because he kept saying kind of that he was doing it for the fame and fortune rather than the justice or rather than finding these kids so that that was um that was something that bugged me i took it that he was into the justice and but really, he was doing it for the fame and fortune. Well, I mean, he sort of cracks wise about it in that first interview that we hear him watching. I mean, he, well, he sort says, of... I'd rather cut off my hands or something than, than just be doing it for the money. Something along can, those lines. Yeah. Um, he makes a joke about doing it for for fame and fortune yeah he has a conversation with his wife about doing it for yeah. money and yeah. for uh to to reestablish his fame um and i mean i think that you know for anybody who's working on you know the project the thing that they think is going to sort of make them you know there's always a little bit of that underneath it you know what i mean like this is going to be the thing that makes me this is going to be the thing that puts me back you know um and, and and i didn't mind hearing it because to me it felt honest and it didn't make me dislike him mm-hmm. um, because of it i mean he's he's doing this because i mean at the end of the day he is a failed fiction writer mm-hmm Right. He is um, I mean, I think he sort of views this views his sort of um, uh, what do we call it? A detour into true crime as being a step above writing um, college textbooks, as he kind of says to his daughter at one point early on. Um, And so, I mean, I think that there is a real kind of grappling with a kind of elusive um, degree of success. Mm hmm. He's not going to be successful on his own terms, but he still is is making a success of himself doing something that's kind of close, you know, that's sort of just adjacent to where he wants to be. Um, and so, I mean, I, I did kind of find it and I, I you know, I mean, I, I'm assuming that no one here tonight is going to agree with me, but I, I think I found it a little bit refreshing that a character would actually kind of own up to um, to that kind of baser impulse uh, in what he's doing. You know, I, I thought it was kind of honest of the screenwriter, and you know, it, it's conceivable that we are um, we are hearing the voice of uh, of the writer coming through Ethan Hawke's character. It was surprising that that was kind of his like ultimate goal. I think in those scenes where he was like watching himself in the past, I didn't get the sense that he really was doing it for the justice. If he felt like someone that from the beginning was doing it for fame and money, like that first thing he says, I, I kind of took him at face value. And then when he said the thing about justice, it kind of felt like bullshit to me. And I, I feel like I would have been more interested in his character if I had seen like a change over the last 10 years. If like the desperation of, of the moment now had kind of brought him to this new thing, it, it was kind of hard to like feel connected with him or relate to him when he, it just felt like he was unchanging for the last 10 years to me. But I agree. It's cool. It was cool that he, I mean, especially at the end, like when you realize it's kind of like hubris, right? Like for, that's what, which, which feels like it needed to happen. It was important. But there was something about just his development over time that just I feel like could have been better. 
So, Mr. King, would that constitute your second detention slip, or do you have a, a different answer for us? I think there's also one more thing, and I don't think I can be very articulate about this, but when I, I think it was like the first 45 minutes of the movie when he's like pulling out the videos and watching them. I, I was so stunned and loved the videos so much. I found them so shocking. And yet at a certain point, it did kind of feel like a little bit of a slog. Like we were just kind of like having the same moment over and over again, where he pulls out another video. We know someone's going to die on it. And I was trying to figure out what was kind of like feeling boggy to me. And I, I do think there's something rather passive about his character in this movie, where it just feels, even though he like does some things, like tries to like get the deputy to help him out. And he like, you know, calls out to this um, professor of the occult. But overall, it just felt like a lot of things were just kind of falling in his lap. And he was just kind of just passive for most of the movie. And it, it did kind of wear on me a little bit. I, I, I wanted to see him just activate it a little bit more. All right, Mr. Lorick, do you have a second detention set? <sighs> yes, I do. Um, I said earlier that I, I believe for the horror genre there is a sort of complexity to the writing and to the character development and let that be what it is uh because i mean we we are presented with um I think unique internal and external struggles that are fairly well realized. Um, at the end of the day, I don't need this story to be underpinned to the degree that it is. I don't need a Babylonian origin story for the demon. I don't need the symbology and the signifiers. I don't need the scorpion and the snake and the dog. And I mean, I am very much a, a Westerner, you know? I mean, I love a sort of Western sort of causality and, and structure to my horror movies. And I live for dramaturgy and, and for knowing that the filmmakers have thought through their story. But here, I sort of wish it had a little bit more of a sort of J or K horror approach to the telling of the story. Um, and sort of along those same lines, I think I also would have preferred um, for, for the storytelling to go on just a little bit longer before the character of, of Mr. Boogie or Bagool is introduced. You know, I mean, like, let us believe it's a cult. Let us believe that maybe it's a, a serial killer with some kind of mysterious intention and, and tools, you know, before we get like a Halloween clown faced monster, you know, some kind of like, um, you know, demon ex machina. Um, Mr. Winnick, have you got a second and final? You know, listen, it is always interesting when you find yourself agreeing with people who you have not discussed the film with before. Um, we obviously didn't sit down and have a, what did you like? What did you hate before we sat down to record? So let's talk about this evil deity, Bugul, the so-called eater of children. You know, as much as I like a good occult film with supernatural deities, 
there is always something kind of goofy for me about them. And I know I'm going to uh, get excoriated for saying this, but they're probably the only elements that didn't work for me in films like The Exorcist and Hereditary. Um, Just the words Pazuzu, Paimon, they kind of take me out of it. Uh, they, They kind of make me think we're dealing with nursery rhymes. I mean, here again, the use of of the added intrigue, it explained what was happening, but somehow I'd almost rather not know why it's happening. I want to see the scary thing in the Super 8 movies. I want to see the thing come out of the movie, like in The Ring, but I don't want an explanation for it. I just want to be unsettled by it. That to me is scary. When you say it, Eric, it sounds like a, a an Asian car. It sounds like Subaru. Yes, right. thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> All right, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess, get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, maybe have a snack or two. Hannah and Ryan, growing up, did you have favorite school time snacks? Well, I was raised by hippies in New Hampshire. We had goats and an outhouse. So my schoolyard snacks were peanuts and raisins and carrots from my garden. I can't say they were my favorite, although I liked the peanuts and raisins. But um, yeah, classic hippie snacks. All right. Interesting. Ryan? Growing up with absent parents, uh, there were no carrots or peanuts and raisins. So I, I, I'm just going to say combos. Oh, you and Christopher Shin. You boy. and Christian, indeed, indeed, I love with the that. combos. Did you have a favorite variety? I I believe just the I don't know what the the shell was, but just the the one with the cheese. It's just cheese cracker. Oh, pretzel. I'll okay. go with pretzel cheese. Pretzel, pretzel cheese. Mm-hmm. Not the not pizza the pizza. Ones. No, not the pizza. Okay, ones. okay, fair. <laughs> um. All right, kids. Let's take a break, and we will come back for the superlatives. everyone's concerned you're the most popular girl in your school and the fact that you hang with d and i well that speaks very highly of you well he's very popular Ed. cools nerds your side my side man it's all bullshit it's just tough enough to be yourself so is this your first time out here yeah i don't think i'm very popular out here either hey i met you you are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do that first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for, well, well, of course, Gaspar Noe, director of such films as Irreversible, Love 3D, uh, Enter the Void, Climax, and Lux Eterna. I was going to let you say it, Lux Eterna, with, you. Our, um, with Charlotte Gainsbourg, and of course, one of our patron saints, Beatrice Dahl. Yes. Love her. It's the Love her. best what? commercial for Yves Saint Laurent that's ever been made. When is she going to come on the show? 
And what do we have to do to get her on the show? Uh, I think we need I think we need a live translator because her English is not particularly thrilling and my my French is not as good as it needs to be. I was going to say, you know, because she started following us on Instagram and I was so thrilled and I was just like, how good is her English? Whenever we communicate, it's always me writing in French and her I know, responding but maybe, in French. Right. And she actually, her Instagram posts are all in French. Yeah. So disappointing. I anyway. I just, I just need to, to be a better French speaker. And then clearly all roads lead to Beatrice Dahl. All roads lead, indeed. All right, so to start us off, let's do the Gaspar Noe Award. This is for Most Disturbing Scene. Bradford Lorick, why don't you go first? I'm going to be really um, easy about this one, guys. I'm going to give it to the opening image of the entire film. It's before we even get the title. It's not exactly a cold open. It's just the the movie starts and we watch a family of four being hanged from a tree branch. And I think because it is without context, it is um, incredibly disturbing. And so I'm giving it to the first frames of Sinister. Oh, God, that that really that shook me. Um, Hannah. Uh, most disturbing scene, the Gaspar Noe Award. What do you have for us? You know, one of the first jump scares of the movie, I think I'm going to give this award to, which was the when Ethan Hawke's character is hearing things at night and he comes down the hallway and he sees a box sitting in mm. front of the door mm-hmm. and then the box starts to open very slowly and then suddenly his son's naked torso juts out of it and the scream i mean talk about sound design the scream is so bone chilling that that has really stayed with me and was terrifying well chosen hannah agreed big fan agreed yes ryan king uh most disturbing scene i was torn between the opening image which was incredible um but i have to say the lawnmower moment it's just oh, too much. Yes. I knew it was coming the second time, and it still just really upset me. It's interesting, because I was really torn um, between your two moments, uh, Hannah and Ryan. It was either going to be Trevor waking up in the box or the lawnmower scene. But the more I thought about it, the more I have to go with the lawnmower scene. Um, the way that kid just appears out of nowhere and and we don't see what happens, but we do see Ellison's reaction to it. And it tells you everything you need to know. Very effective use of lighting there to keep your eyes mm-hmm. trained on one spot and one spot only. So when it happens and the kid pops into view, it's it's like breathtaking. So I agree. Lawnmower scene. Which brings us to our next award, and that would be the Ellen Ripley Award. For character that most deserved to live. And this is uh, uh, named after, of course, Ellen Ripley, the lone survivor of the doomed Nostromo from Ridley Scott's 1979 Alien, played by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, so character that most deserved to live. Let's start off with Hannah on this one. Can it be someone that most deserved to live and lived? Or did they have to die? Yes, it can. We can bend the rules a little bit. Absolutely. I'm going to say my boyfriend, Deputy So-and-so. Deputy So-and-so most deserved to live because you liked him so much. Well, I feel like he figured it out, what was Mm. going on. He was trying to save the day. Mm -hmm. And he was um, 
sort of down to earth, clever man who really had his heart in the right place. And also he had one line, Ryan and I commented on it about the damage that the murders had done to their town Mm -hmm. and the pain that the town still felt that was really um, kind of moving. So that's what I'll give that award to. All right. Uh, Ryan, what do you have for the Ellen Ripley Award? Also, if Deputy So-and-So had not lived, those cheekbones would have been taken away out of the world for all time. Which <laughs> That's true. That's true. Sinister 2 would not have made $53 million or whatever it made. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, I don't remember the name of the family. They're the ones that die in the, the, the fire. Uh, in the car, I think in the seventies. Is that uh-huh. is that when that was? The Martinez. The Martinez, Martinez family. family. I think it was seventy seven. Was it? What was the name of that film, Bradford? Uh, was that Barbecue? Yes. Not as good as the the video titled Lawn Work, which I was very oh. excited to see. Oh. Hello. But I have to say, just watching the father and the Martinez family in that that short video, he seemed like a pretty great guy. I don't know if he <laughs> uh, he needed to go. I like the way you think, Mr. King. Because. Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I am um, going to fall oh. in line with him, but I like that oh, I approach. See. I like that. That is the way that I often approach uh, giving out, uh, designating my awards. Well, why don't you tell us to whom you are designating this award? Well, sir? this is going to be really wildly unpopular tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but I, I am going to give my Ellen Ripley Award to Ellison Oswald. He is just trying wow. to um, bring a little security uh, to his family. He's trying to earn some scratch, doing something akin to what he wants to be known for. Um, and and he does nothing that, uh, that would um, demand comeuppance at the end of an axe wielded by his daughter. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. All right. Um, well, guys, I'm going to give it to Trevor. Poor kid. Yeah. First of all, night terrors. Waking up in a box. Waking up in the bushes. What's in the box? What's, What's in, the, in box? the box? What's in the box? <laughs> he doesn't know why. He doesn't complain nearly as much as his sister, who is complaining pretty much nonstop throughout the film. Um, I-, I like Trevor. He reminded me of another young man that I know. So I'm giving him my Ellen Ripley Award, which brings us to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. And of course, this is named for Michael Myers, uh, the shape of things to come, the evil within us all from the Halloween cinematic universe. And there have been so many of these films over the years, but but Michael lives on, does he not, Bradford? He does. In fact, my three-and-a-half-year-old nephew could tell you all about it. Yes, he could. Uh, now, this is Halloween 4. Is this season of The Witch? No, it is, it's one after season of The Witch. Oh, thank it, you. Thank it is, you. We have resumed the Michael Myers storyline after our- I see. After our detour through um, spooky Maskville. Yes. Well, it's only 11.15 here on the East Coast, so- Maybe you could wake up Grayson and ask him to come tell us what happens in uh, Halloween 4. Oh, Grayson's um, awake. He's downstairs watching a Serbian film right now. <laughs> you sicko. <laughs> All right, Bradford Lurk, why don't you start us off? Who gets your 
Michael Myers Award. Oh, guys, God, this is so uncharacteristic of me, but I don't, I'm not designating it because I, I don't think that anyone in this film deserves to die. Wow, you're abstaining. I'm abstaining. Ryan King, let's go over to you. Uh, Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. Who do you have? I guess I have a logistical question. Are Uh-oh. those five kids that go into the video and commit the murders, are they technically dead? Great question. Uh, let's go to the Russian judge. Bradford? I think they are technically operating in a in a on a different plane, in a dimension that is beyond yep. what we can uh, easily comprehend. Sure, call them dead, Ryan. I will allow it. Well, I, I, I've got to say, the girl who thought up that tree-cutting, hanging-my-family murder, I don't know. I think she deserves to die. I mean, she would be like a shoe-in in a Republican ticket somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in rural pennsylvania maybe uh you know i think she would she would be great at lunch with like lauren bobert and marjorie taylor green just yeah. hacking people apart getting handies watching musicals you know i mean you know <laughs> hannah what do you have for the michael myers award oh this one's tricky because i don't really feel like anyone who's not in a demonic dimension deserves to die if I was being really uh, judgy, I would say Ethan Hawke's character, just because, again, I don't feel to him to have had that many redeeming qualities in the film. But no, I'm going to abstain as well from handing out this award. All right. Wow. Wow. Well, guess what, guys? I am going to be judgy, and I am going to give it to Ellison Oswald. Son of a bitch. Moving his family to this house. Ethan Hawke just, I I have to say, he excels at these kinds of characters. Not many directors will cast him in this kind of role. But Scott Derrickson just sees that all-American face of his and just makes it completely eerie. Um, I don't know if you all saw the black phone, but mm-hmm. I, it was a side of Ethan Hawke that we don't normally see. He can be slimy. He can be sleazy. He can be oily. And in this film, I absolutely detested him. So there you go. All right. We're there. It's the Ken Russell Award for most Baroque screen moment. Oh, Ken. Named for the... Uh, the director of Altered States and Gothic and Lair of the White Worm. Oh, Salome's Last Dance, Lysthenia. Oh, come on. Tommy. The list goes uh, on and on and on, including on, whore, 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 take the money, say, take the money, say, whore. Did you say yes, whore, whore, take the money? Yes. Whore with Teresa Russell. Mm. Um, not to be so confused with the- Teresa Genzel, who was not in a film called Whore. No. 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 <laughs> No. Everybody's favorite star of Big Brother, Ken Russell, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Baroque screen moment. Uh, I'm going to have you go first, uh, Bradford. What would you designate the Ken Russell Award to in this film? Guys, I'm a little bit late to the party, but I'm still showing up at the door. I'm giving my Ken Russell Award for most Baroque screen moment to death by lawnmower, to a gleefully 
piloted, uh, mm. you know, corkscrew haired little girl in a bright yellow slicker because I mean, smart, you know, um, running over the faces of her family. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Holy shit. That's, that is Baroque. If, I mean, if ever there were a, a Baroque moment in this film, that is it guys. That is it. Interesting. Uh, I'm, you know, sometimes it's a moment, sometimes it's a scene. I'm going to go next and and give my Ken Russell Award to the ending of this film. And I just want to take a couple seconds to set it up. After we see the abducted kids in the attic watching the movie and shushing Allison, which always cracks me up, and Allison splices together the deleted scenes, we see the missing kid, each missing kid come forward with that shushing gesture. I feel like instead of keeping it on that creepy plane, Derrickson just ratchets up the terror and the score, of course, because there's blood on the walls and the kids look weird and the score is really fucking loud. So I didn't love it, but it was Baroque as hell. (laughs) I'll buy that. I'm going to give this award to a set. I'm going to give this award to the house that they flee back to. Which is like, why the fuck would you leave this house in the first place to go to this little shitty ranch home? And I know why. I know why. But still, they come back and it's this like Baroque house with a fireplace that is like humongous. There's tea sets everywhere. The the windows, floor to ceiling, everything's built in. So I'm going to give the award to that gorgeous set bravo so smart ryan king uh this is the ken russell award what do you got you know i understand the impulse to want to give this award to a scene or a death or a set but i'm gonna give it to a line and i have to say i have to give a little bit of uh preamble here because i thought it was set up so well with ellison's daughter with their constant talk about, is dad's book going to be famous? You're going to be famous, dad. And then at the end of the movie, when she's standing with an axe about to cut his freaking head off, she's like, dad, this will make you famous again. I think I butchered the line. But she gives such a badass line before she cuts his head off. And Bradford, do you happen to know what the actual line is? I don't. Not off the top That's of my close. head. That's pretty close. It was pretty good. Head. That's pretty good. I think I added a couple words that kind of messed up the rhythm. But Ryan, I, I think that was close enough, and we totally get the point. Did you see my acting background, too? You really sold it. Listen, guys, we are at the final award of the night. Uh, this is the Brad Dourif Award for a character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif whom you, of course, will know, of course, as the the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise, among many, many others. He also, of course, known to scare you listeners back when we were 21 Jump Scare uh, as the Gemini killer, James, James Veneman, in The Exorcist 3. In a film that we very much enjoyed. He also, of course, was uh, in um, Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Dune. flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yes. Lynch's Lynch's Dune, Lynch's Blue Velvet, Wise Blood. Not an actor known for his uh, underplaying. Let's just say. So to start us off, let's go to Hannah for the Brad Dourif Award. What do you have? I think because the older cop was kind of the intro into Pennsylvania, 
and mm. he didn't really do it for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I would have loved to have seen a little bit more wild dwarf action in that older cop character. U.S. Senator Fred Dalton Thompson. Yeah, exactly that mm-hmm. guy. Interesting. Um, I'm giving it to Deputy So and So. Strange to begin with. Boy, would he be even stranger in Dourif's hands. Mr. King, Brad Dourif Award, who do you give it to? When Ethan Hawke is walking through the house and all the dead kids are kind of swarming around him, there's this glorious moment where this boy in a doorway behind him in PJs comes racing towards him. Mm -hmm. In slow motion. Pauses and decides at the last minute to duck into a doorway. (laughs) Brad Dourif. Hair a flying. Uh huh. Bradford Lorick, take us home. Who do you give the Brad Dourif Award to? Oh, I would absolutely love to see Brad Dourif play Mr. Jungle Boogie. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of talk, but like Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, Brad Dourif can say anything he wants with his eyes. I think he'd make a great bagool. All righty. And uh, kids, with that, With that award, we have arrived at the final segment of the night, the final exam. And this, of course, is the moment where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything that we have heard and seen about this film. Hannah, would you uh, do us the honor? Sure. I'm going to give this film a C-. Whoa! (laughs) Zing! Hannah Cabell, wow. Tell us how you really feel. Jeez. Mr. King, are you coming in close? I was going to go to a C, but after hearing some of the things you guys had to say about it, to be honest, I, I think it's bumped up to a C plus. Whoa. Ooh. All right. Wow. Oh. Interesting. Eric, are you going to do better? Well, I'm going to do a little bit better. I mean. Which is shocking because Eric is usually hovering somewhere around like the D minus to F range for everything now, I recommend. Now that is not true and you know it yes i'm gonna give this a solid b all right eric i'm shocked i'm impressed what about you sir uh i i am going to give this a b as well interesting eric i think this is the first time we've ever been aligned it's definitely not the first time we've been aligned bradford but it's the first time in a while it's It's been a while you and me against the world tonight here win I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you do, if you did, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, Bring some peanuts, raisins, carrots, and combos. And hey, maybe even subscribe. I think in that combo, that's actually called the infernal ants on a log. Could be. Yeah. Uh, And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, because God knows we deserve it. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our guests, Hannah Cabell and Ryan King. Hannah, if people want to find you and your work online, where can they do it? Uh, On Instagram, Hannah Cabell, and on 
Facebook as well and on LinkedIn. And what about you, Ryan? When when can we expect to see uh, the 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 Cabell and, and King productions coming out? The next ones. I'm not sure about the next ones. I mean, the Tudors available on Netflix. Yep. And Black Flies. I'm not sure. I know it's coming out internationally before the end of the year, but I still haven't heard. Okay. About American. Oh, you're just so laissez-faire about it, Brian. Uh, meanwhile, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. And you can find me in any dark bar or at BradfordLorg.com. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our music is by Van Halen, Edward Elgar, and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will see you next time in the possessed Super 8 film projector that we like to call... A deity? What kind of deity? Uh, a, a very obscure one, dating back to Babylonian times, named Bagul, the eater of children. Did you say eater? Yes, uh, uh, of children. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, the crimes that you're dealing with, they all have the element of uh, mise en charge, correct? Yes, yes.